This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he's the Michael to my Nick. Come to drag me back home. Perry Cyber. How you oh, doing, that's, Perry? That's setting yourself up for such awfulness. It really I, is. It, I, it feel, is. I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I get to be Christopher Walken. So <laughs> Okay. I, you win an that. Oscar. You're yeah, right. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. So how are you doing, Perry? I'm well. All is well and good. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have, I had this great experience over the last couple of weeks. I think since the last time we talked where I, uh, I have been going back in earnest to the movie theater, uh, to regular screening, oh, nice. which I had not been doing. And I had this amazing experience of sitting through 15 minutes of trailers for stuff. I was all <laughs> really excited to see like the new Almodovar film. I was like, Oh, this is why I go to the movies for the previews. This is really what I've missed. It gets so excited about what's going to be out in a few months. Now, have you found, because what I found very early on, and I think it's kind of righted itself, but there was, and I've heard it called like a zombie mall effect to the movie theaters. Like you go in and it just doesn't feel the same. It's like half empty and they're kind of tossing the treats at you from the concession stand and I think it's kind of righted, but what have you felt anything different? I've been going back a little bit longer. I've never so so this was this, I didn't plan on talking about this, but literally just yesterday when we recorded, I went to see the new Bond film. Okay, and I literally was like, I didn't know if I was going to make the show that I wanted to get to because I was coming from work and I wasn't exactly sure when I would leave work. So I I realized I was going to make it and I got there and I realized I hadn't bought my ticket ahead of time, which I usually do at this particular theater. And so I got on my app and I bought the ticket and I walked in and there's like nobody at the very front to scan my little barcode to. Mm -hmm. So I just kept walking through and I walked on past and walked up to the split for the theater on the side that the screening was in. And there was nobody there either to scan my little QR code. (laughs) So I just walked up down to the theater and sat down. So that was the closest I've had to that experience. Okay. But there was literally nobody working, let alone at the movie. Uh, but you know, but I still got to see the movie and I still paid for it like a good, like a good human. That's good to hear. Uh no, it's it's weird. I think it's kind of stabilized in the last few months, but it was really weird when I started going back in like I think April was when I first went to my first few like movies back without like renting a theater or anything like that. Um, And it was weird. It was, you would go to the concession stand and it's still kind of this way. You don't touch anything at the concession stand anymore. You don't touch the candy. You don't touch the popcorn. (laughs) Like for a while, AMC theaters would give you a little cup of popcorn or the popcorn, but they give you a little cup of butter to pour on yourself. (laughs) So you weren't going to the little butter thing. Anything just here. Here's everything you need. It's a one and all kit. You just go to your seat, sit down, don't touch anything. Yep. It was literally like that. You had to space out at the Coke freestyle thing. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, like theaters, I think when they first started, the capacity was something like 25% or something like that. And so I remember going to, I took my son to see um, King Kong on opening night, Kong versus 
Godzilla. And uh, it was an opening night, Friday, 7 p.m. IMAX screening. Maybe 10 people at the whole theater. It, it was crazy. Um, and that seems to be yeah. changing. Um, one thing I never appreciated before the pandemic was being able to choose my own seat. And now everywhere makes you do it. And I, I love it so much. Oh, I had been doing that beforehand. The okay. with uh, Cinemark, the local multiplex near me, is a Cinemark, and I, uh, I found it very easy to use their online ticketing okay. service. So I, I do and have been, and I, I, I for the most part like it. <laughs> I don't. I, I still have certain problems with it. I don't. I, I, I have been to many a show pre-pandemic where it seemed like every single seat was going to be taken. And then I get there and it's maybe half full. <laughs> like, come on, there's got to be a better system. I could get a seat I wanted better than this if these people aren't here, yeah. but that's okay. It's a small price to pay. I'm happy to be back at the movies. One thing I will say that I love, I'm a, uh, and this is not an ad, we're not being paid to say this, but I am an AMC Stubbs A-lister. Um, so I pay and, you know, I get like three movies a week and it's fantastic. It's like if movie pass worked, Um, it's so good, but what they added post pandemic is the option to order your snacks ahead of time. Yes. And I love that. I I don't have to get to the movie a half hour early anymore. Like (laughs) if I want, I can show up five minutes before pick up my snacks. Don't worry about getting a seat because my seat's already reserved. Sit down right as the, you know, half hour of preview start. And I think AMC is like. 30 minutes of trailers and it, it's insane, but you know, <laughs> you can only see, you can only see the trailer for um, uh, Dune like five times. Before <laughs> yeah. To, re- to repeat the fact that I, this is not an advertisement, but I, I also am a member of the Cinemark, whatever their loyalty okay. program is. And they've even one up AMC in that not only can you order your snacks ahead of time and pick them up, you can choose to have them delivered to your seat. Oh, nice. Yes. So, nice. you know, it, 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 it ain't the draft house, but it's pretty good. It's <laughs> yeah. That's not bad at all. Um, so good. I'm glad you're back at the movies. Um, I, I, I've loved going back and uh, we're going to start by doing what we always do, which is before we talk the deer hunter, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. And Perry, you requested that I start. And um, it's funny. I think when we last talked in September, um, because spoiler alert, clearing out three hours to watch a movie uh, is pretty hard, uh, especially yes. when Perry's saying watch it in one sitting, which yeah. almost happened, except for my kids interrupting me. That's but, oh, uh, good. That's the best effort. That's all I can ask for. But uh, it's hard to do that. So that's why this is coming out a little bit later. But when we last talked, I told you that in August, I had seen four or five movies the entire month of August. Uh, looking at my letter. Right. Back. In the month of September, I saw, and this includes theatrical and at home, one. I saw one movie in September. I I, I saw Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings at the beginning of September. (laughs) And I think the rest was all filled with the Marvel movie. Yeah, the rest was all filled with like Sopranos and, and stuff like that. But I am happy to say we are now halfway through October. And I have six movies under my belt and a lot more to go. Um, and the, what I want to talk about, since we're in October, I, I love a good horror movie. And I've been setting up a little project for myself this October. I'm a big Stephen King fan. So I've been going through Stephen King adaptations that I had not seen yet. 
Um, and and the, the goal is I'm writing about them. I'm putting them on my newsletter and, you know, no one needed another article to say why Carrie is great or why, <laughs> you know, what, what works about the shining. Um, so I've been going through the other stuff and like this week I, I saw Cujo, which, um, you know, it's a movie <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I could go on about Cujo, but I don't want to interrupt you. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch up. Go ahead. Keep going, please. Uh, uh, next week, I'll have my thoughts on Pet Cemetery, the uh, 1989 one. That's, yeah, that's a really good book. I, oh, it's a great book and, and movie works too. But uh, what I want to talk about, I saw 1982's Creep Show for my very oh! first time. Oh, you've never seen Creep Show. I had never seen oh! Creep Show. Oh, I'm um, so jealous. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, I kind of chose it because it felt like, okay, this should be kind of my jam. It's George Romero, who I like. It's Stephen King, who I like. Um, and yeah, I mean, no surprise. I, I loved the heck out of this. Um, if you don't know what Creep Show it is, it is a uh, series of five movies. It's an anthology. They're kind of, some of them are based on Stephen King's short stories. He wrote the screenplay to this. They've kind of got the feel of a 1950s horror comic book running through them and it's just a bunch of you know little horror stories and the the two thoughts I had upon finishing that are one it might be the closest I've ever seen a movie come to capturing the tone of Stephen King especially his short short stories <laughs> like and it, it's because it's his voice and it you know in one it's it's actually Stephen it's King him. starring yes. in it and um you know, they, he's a much better writer than he is actor. But uh, <laughs> the other thing I thought this would make this is going to make a fantastic first R-rated horror movie for my son one day. Um, th- this is really a movie that when he wants to see something that's a little edgy, a little scary, but that I know he's not ready for the big stuff yet. I'm like, Creep Show is going to be the right one. Um, it, it's one of those movies where you are supposed to laugh right after you scream and it's this balance of horror and comedy that just it works more often than it doesn't um i like pretty much all the stories in there uh some of them i like better than others um you know i i wouldn't say anything you know anything nothing really frightened me aside from ed harris dancing in uh <laughs> in the first story the father's day yes but it's got a great little visual look to it. It's, it's, you know, these bright comic book colors. Romero uses these animated transitions throughout it. Um, when they want to show something really gruesome, they go for it. There's a, there's a corpse in the Father's Day story that has yes. bugs leaking from its eyes. There's a pretty cheesy monster in one of them. Um, but the story I love the most, and it's because I love King's little pulpy crime stories. It involves Ted Danson... Uh, as a man who's caught cheating with the wife of a mobster and the mobster comes to get his revenge, the mobster is Leslie Nielsen. Yes. And it works so well. He is so, he, he has this like jaunty menace to him that is just so much fun to watch. And it's just like, you know, it's the term, you know, they knew the assignment. Everyone involved in this knew exactly the right tone to play it. And it, it, it's just, it's a delightful little Halloween movie. I, I really liked it. And um glad I started out with that because it, it got downhill from there pretty quickly with that. <laughs> well, I'm curious what else is there that you have not seen that will be um, a first time experience for you. Well, okay. That's a little hard to navigate because there are some that I haven't seen that I don't intend to see like Lawnmower Man or uh, Children of the Corn. <laughs> oh, um, well, Okay. 
Um, I chuck into the corn. You might want to give a uh, give it give give it really? a watch. Okay. I, I mean, don't don't that. get some of the sequels, but it's. I mean, I'm not saying it's good, but it's not. Don't dismiss it out of hand. That's what I mean to say. Um, I'm considering Needful Things once again, Ed, uh, Ed Harris, because I which like I've that never seen. A lot. Um, but I think the one I'm really gonna do is uh, Doctor Sleep, which oh um, okay. I, I've heard <laughs> I've heard good things about the director's cut. Um, I the book was not good um but I, oh, i'm curious about this it. is well sounds like we need to start a new podcast chris <laughs> <laughs> there's already a really good stephen king podcast um but uh, and in fact it's the podcast that got me really back into stephen king over the last year um but yeah i wasn't really a fan of dr sleep the novel but i like mike flanagan and i'm really curious to see uh how he handled that and um so i, I, I might do that but it's it's another three-hour one, and as we've discussed before, that's not well, uh, <laughs> not, I'm, not the easiest. I'm intrigued because I finally read the book this summer. Oh, I just okay. got to Doctor Sleep and greatly enjoyed it, much more than I thought I would. And then uh, started to watch the three-hour director's cut, and after about twenty minutes, I'm like, no this is not working for me at all. And I've abandoned and never gone back. Okay, <laughs> so it's just sitting there on my HBO quay, just like interesting. Yeah, you still got this. I'm like. I don't care. My, see, my problem with my problem with the director's cut, and I have no idea. I didn't see the theater, so I don't know how it's different. Is that every single sequence and scene is laden with doom, and you know, King understands that some things are funny. Yes, you, yeah. you got to counterpoint that. You can't do three hours of menace. That's not going to play. Even Kubrick understood that in The Shining. It's <laughs> there is weirdness which does not have to be horrific and this is just so foreboding throughout conversations that shouldn't be menacing have this menacing audio undertone to them that's just like i you're not you're not working for me you're failing or the book the book worked for me i enjoyed the book a lot much more than i expected to i remember and it's it's kind of a standard king thing with king for me i liked it up until about the last hundred pages and um yeah that's that, that's kind of par for the course with a lot of King, but I might watch the movie. I, I'm curious because I'm also not the biggest fan of The Shining, the movie. Um, I, I respect it. I don't know that I like it, um, but it's been a long time since I saw that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, there's that. There's, you know, the werewolf I, I, one. I, I would flip that. I think I like it, but I don't respect it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> oh, so, so, yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Did you ever see Cat's Eye? I have not seen Cat's Eye. Okay, so Cat's Eye, uh, it's, another, it's another omnibus film. It's three films. It's three shorts based on different King novels, King short stories. And um, they're not good, except for the first one. The first one is a brilliant adaptation of one of my very favorite stories in, uh, in Night Shift, which is Quitter's Inc. Oh, you, oh, I didn't know and that. It's, and it's, it's great because Alan King plays the head of Quitter's Inc., the, okay. the old sort of uh, the comedian. And James Woods is the guy trying to quit smoking. And it's it's brilliant casting. It's a lot of fun. Oh my god! It gosh. really is. Re- I mean, do, I, don't sit through all three. There's no reason. But that was really good, and it's the first one. <laughs> I'm I'm really down to see James Wood go through some pain too. It's <laughs> it's it's re- it's really good casting. It's really effectively done. Granted, they're working for gold material. That story is fantastic. It's a good story. Just yeah. a perfect idea, and it's perfectly executed in the story and in the short film. So yes, I would I would put that on your radar. 
All right. I will. Uh, I'll see what I can get to in the next month. But uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what I get to. I'm enjoying this. Um, but Perry, I'm curious, what have you been watching? So, like I said, I've been going to the movies so much. It's been nice. And I guess I wanted to live up to the stereotype and talk about the card counter. Oh, OK. I, uh, Paul Schrader's new film, his follow up to uh, First Reformed, which was, I thought, the very best film a couple of years ago. And it's another one of his uh, man in a room films. It is very much in line with Light Sleeper and Taxi Driver and and First Reformed. It's dealing with very heavy things. Uh, it's much pulpier than First Reformed. It's a film that uh, uh, takes a few moments to to linger on, not revel in some really horrific, violent images. Uh, but for, as always with Schrader, uh, a, a transcendental ending. Yet again, he's just rewritten the end of Brisson's Pickpocket in order to get into his get into his deep film nerdy stuff that said oscar isaac is uh perfect in this world he is he is a perfect paul schrader actor i always like that schrader said in first once he wrote first reformed he he realized there were only you know the the type of character he'd written this protestant minister of a particular age there he could he said i could only think of three actors who could have possibly played it and it was ethan hawk who played it jake gyllenhaal and oscar isaac and as soon as he said three i thought oh oscar isaac Oscar Isaac could have done yeah. that. So I'm so happy to see Oscar Isaac as the lead in his next movie. Um, and it's it's just, it's really good. If you're if you're a Schrader fan, particularly, it's of note and absolutely worth seeking out. I hope it's still in theaters. Probably not at this point. Uh, but, oh, I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I was really happy to see him follow up something as strong as First Reform with something as good as this. That sounds good. And I have, I think I have a day off next Friday. And I might add that to my list because it is, if it's not in theaters anymore and things are staying forever in theaters now. Yeah. Since, since everything's, uh, you know, the release load. So like, but it is on VOD now as well. You can, you can oh, cool. it at home. So cool. I will add that to the list. It's not, you know, it's not earth shattering end of the world stuff, but I, I, I really liked it. I was really happy to see it. And yes, I was happy to see it might've been, it might've been put in such a good mood because I got to see the trailer for the new Almodovar film in front of it. There you I'm go. so happy there's new Almodovar <laughs> film. I think I saw the trailer for that and I remember nothing about it, but right before old and uh, you know, you go from that to old and um, it's whiplash. That's whiplash. Yes. It it was definitely not put in, you know, it was definitely not targeted at the old audience. Um, No, no, that, that went over the heads of some. Yes. uh, um, I am curious. You said you saw the new bond the other day. I did. Uh, Curious what you thought about that. Cause I saw that as well. So I, I I don't know that we've ever gone deep on Bond in the in, in our show. So I, I will, I will confess the background and say I, I'm not a huge Bond guy. Okay. I I've seen many Bond films. I have not seen all of them. Uh there's none of them I love outside of Skyfall, which I do kind of love. <laughs> um and I really love what Daniel Craig, what they've done with the Daniel Craig tenure as Bond. I enjoyed mm-hmm. this this cycle of films a great deal. I like that this film really does feel like a payoff for all of those films that they've written a bond that arcs from being a cold clinical sociopath to someone who is capable of feeling love and, and sharing it and experiencing it and, and understands the price he pays for what he does and does not let him off the hook for doing what he's done his whole life. I, I, th- I think they found a really interesting moral tightrope to walk through these five films. Not to say all the five films are great. 
Quantum of Solace is a giant turd of a movie that I loathe with every fiber of my being. <laughs> but that said, Casino Royale is really good. Skyfall is the greatest film ever made that is a Bond film. That's the way I don't offend the Bond purists. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the best Bond film ever made. And I actually, nobody likes Spectre except me. I actually liked Spectre. I thought Spectre was oh. fine. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't understand the hate. I understand <laughs> people do. I just don't quite understand why. Maybe because I loathe Quantum of Solace if I haven't mentioned it. An unwatchable movie. And so on that bar, it was so good. And then I thought this was really, this was good. I have no complaints. I am happy that Daniel Craig gets this good a send off. I think it was a very bold move to do what they do in the movie. Am I talking obliquely enough for us to understand what I'm talking <laughs> about without spoiling the movie for anybody? Uh, and the way they literally end it is a really smart way to leave them a lot of free reign to go where they want to next. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, I'm kind of like you. I I, I wrote about it this week. Um I, I I sat there the days before it opened, kind of debating whether I would go see it or not. Because again, it's another three hour movie, yeah. And uh, you know that that time is it, you know doesn't come cheap when you're a parent. Um, and so I was debating like, should I go see it? And and what really came up in my head was, do I like Bond movies? Um, which is weird because I have seen every one since Goldeneye in theaters, usually opening weekend. <laughs> That's why and, you don't like them. Yeah. And <laughs> all the bras and ones after Goldeneye aren't any good. <laughs> and and I like I've seen, you know, I, I used to watch them on TBS when they would play the old ones. I'd watch sure. them with my grandpa. So I like the idea of a Bond movie. I like the, you know, I, I like the little hallmarks of it. Um, and there are some of them I really like. There are other ones I don't like. When I like a Bond movie, it's really fun. When I don't like it. It's dreadful. They're interminable. Yeah, and they're bad. They are dreadfully long. But I've liked Daniel Craig. Um, I love Casino Royale. I love Skyfall. Um, Quantum Quantum of Solace. I, I'm with you on that. I don't like Spectre. So I was curious, and I thought like the one thing I wanted this whole time was just a chance. It didn't have to go full Roger Moore. I wanted Daniel Craig to have some fun, like just say give a few jokes, play with some gadgets, just look like he's enjoying himself. And the first hour and a half of this movie, they, they give him that chance. Um, I think I, I loved the first 90 minutes or so of this with, especially any scene that had uh, Ana de Armas in it, uh, who is just Those so are, adorable. That's the best sequence in the movie. By it's far, so that's the best sequence in the movie. Yes. It's so good. Um, and you know, it's the one, you know, it's the longest section that was untouched by anybody, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah, screenplay. It's obvious that she oh, wrote it's, that. There's banter. There's yes. you know witty choreography. It, it's a lot of fun. Um, I think when it tries to tie everything together, it kind of hits some bumps for me. And I think that's just trying to bring continuity to a series that has never really had it up until these Craig entries. It just feels kind of odd to me. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, the ending is interesting, and you know, it's still two weeks out, so we're not going to go into spoilers. I like where they went with the end. I think it's really the only way Daniel Craig's tenure could have, you know, fittingly ended um, thematically and everything. Um, I will say if you sit through the end of the credits, it kind of undercuts that a little bit. Um, I did only to find out if there would be anything 
afterwards. I, I was curious, like, are they really, is this really the note they're going to leave us with? And I was, I, I found what they did. I mean, that's, that's the traditional ending, right? For any Bond yeah, films. Sure. That, those words would appear <laughs> sometimes with a title. <laughs> Not this <Yes>. time. <laughs> so I, I think that's encouraging. I think that's, I, I, I actually found it weirdly, you know, yes, absolute fan service. I'm not saying it's art, but it is exactly what people would expect and want. And I, I don't think that it, uh, I think it manages to give, I think it manages to give the audience exactly what it expects and wants while still giving them something different and something new enough. And I, I, that's all you can ask for from something like this. I will say the thing I appreciated from this was the fact that this movie was actually filmed in locations around the world. Yeah. There's an opening sequence in Italy that is just gorgeous to watch. Yes. And it really like you lose so much when you can just shoot a Marvel movie in a <laughs> warehouse in Georgia. Um, you know, there's something great about tactically being out there and and being in those hills with the wisps of, you know, floating fiery paper coming down and I, I appreciated that. I thought it looked good. Um, yeah, it, it was fine. I kind of fell apart in places in the last half for me, but I still enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I want to I want to share my favorite trivial fact about the movie. Yeah, the uh, the very fine young director Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who made it, who's uh, most people know his work from the first season of True uh, True Detective. Mm-hmm. I think most people know that than his other three films, which are all great and all worth seeing. He's a fantastic director. Uh, he is the first non Brit to direct a a proper James Bond film. And I find that utterly fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. It took him, what, 25 films into the run to finally go to a country other than Britain. And really, that's fascinating because the film doesn't feel any different for it. No, no, it's a James Bond movie. Right, and he gets all the really British stuff right. It doesn't feel, that doesn't feel off. So, like, yeah, hopefully this opens them up for other possibilities. It's funny, even Spielberg couldn't get to direct a James Bond movie. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't want to see that. uh, That's what he wanted to do so bad, and that's why we have Indiana Jones. Um, (laughs) I'm much happier that we have that. (laughs) Me me too. (laughs) So that's that's Daniel Craig uh, in the final James, or his final James Bond movie. We're going to move on from sad James Bond to sad everyone with uh, our our main discussion tonight. Here's some whiplash. we're going to be finishing up our uh, series of movies from the 70s with a discussion of Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter from 1978. Um, this is a movie, I, I think when we were tossing around titles for this series, it was one that wasn't even on my radar to discuss. I'd, I'd heard of it, but I had not seen it. Um, you were the one who brought it up. You kind of danced back and forth around whether we should do it or not. And then I think I pushed and was like, yeah, I, I, I should see this movie. And um, I'm glad I did. Uh, Perry, can you can you tell everyone what the Deer Hunter is about? The Deer Hunter is a tale of uh, a group of guys in a small uh, Pennsylvania mining town who uh, you spend the first third of the movie just in their life, uh, pretty much the day before or a few days before they're going to ship out to Vietnam. Uh, one of them is getting married, and you simply watch a lot of male bonding and for my money the greatest wedding sequence in movie history yes i know we've talked about the godfather on this show (laughs) what chimino pulls off with that wedding sequence is stunning you feel like you're at a wedding 
It's not, you, you just live among these people for an hour and then you are thrown into the hellscape that is Vietnam uh, in one of the most just, just, just awful sequences you'll ever sit through. Uh, and then you get the last, not even third, you know, that Vietnam sequence is really only, it's not even a third of the movie. It's mm-hmm. close to it, but not quite. And then you're back home and you are seeing what it is like for these men to be back home and what that means and wh- how they have changed in really subtle ways. It is not a big, loud movie about, it doesn't have, it is not a grand statement. It is an emotional film. It's a film about how you feel. And uh, I, I have, I've always found it just sort of, it's, it's that level of power that a movie can achieve for me that makes it very difficult to talk about or to <laughs> express what you're experiencing. You kind of just have to experience it. Uh, it's, I'm reminded of the old Godard line about the only film criticism is to make another film. And this is one of those films that lives up to that mm-hmm. for me. It's, it's a difficult film to talk about exactly why it's, why it works so well, because I find as you, as we start to drill down on it, it'll start to sound very thematic and very idea E and it's really, it is, but that's not what it's about. It is about, this emotional experience that you go through watching. I think that's a really good description. And it might, this conversation might help me get my head a little around some of the, some of the things I was thinking out about through the last week after I've watched this. So I'm going to tell you a little bit uh, inside baseball, how I watch a movie. Um, This was watched on my laptop, which I I would not recommend. Um, Oh, you know, but that's, you've got to do what you got to do. And I will say, I mean, it's still gorgeous on a laptop. Um, I mean, you can still see that this was shot 70 millimeters and not cut at all, not cropped at all. Like there's these giant sweeping shots everywhere. But anyway, so I'm watching the movie on my laptop. um, And when I get done, I'll usually go over to Letterboxd and I'll log my initial impressions of the movie. And it just kind of sticks there in my head. Um, And then over the course of the week, I might go back and revise that review, depending if I feel a different way about the movie. Movie ends. I go over to Letterboxd. Five stars. This is one of the greatest American movies ever made. Over the course of the week, it came down slightly. Like, I think a half a star or a star. So this conversation might might help me figure out why. Because I don't exactly know why I kind of cooled on it in the last week. But um, I want to start at the beginning of the movie. You brought up the wedding sequence. And I'm glad you did because what I was thinking about was, wow, this is really fitting to end our series that started with the Godfather yes. and it with the deer hunter, because they both open with a very similar sequence, which is a wedding that allows you to get into the rhythms of this world, get a sense of place of who these characters are. I a hundred percent agree with you that this wedding sequence is better than the one in the Godfather. Um, Godfather is not really a wedding sequence. It's a wedding dinner, but it's- uh it's serving a different purpose to be yeah. fair. It is doing so, you know, that, that sequence in the Godfather is spectacular, yeah. but it's all narrative. It's yeah. getting this out. It is getting to see the behavior and getting to understand the relationships, but it, it's so directly dealing with plot where this is just, it's slice of just life. seeing these people. Yeah. You're just it's, hanging out at a wedding. 
it's really because you you lose like I never had a question of, okay, where is this all going? What's happening? Why are we all here? It just gets you into the rhythms of leaving work with these people, hanging out with them before the wedding. You're at the wedding. You're at the reception. You're with them hunting before they all ship off for Vietnam. And it just gives you such a sense of place, you know, this this uh, steel town in Pennsylvania um, and the relationships they all have. I mean, there are little, you know, bickerings that go on that kind of, you know, identify some relationships like the one between De Niro's character and John Cazale's character. Um, they, they have some tension between them. There's the issue of Steve is getting married. His bride is pregnant. The, the film doesn't put too heavy of a hand on it, but we know it's not his kid. Yeah. Um, Meryl Streep is, you know, running from her home. And it sets up all these conflicts that the movie doesn't really feel necessary to pay off in the third act. Right. Um, but it, it just, it sets the texture so well that I knew this town. I knew these people. I was invested in their relationships. And I think the problem is something in the other two sections never is quite as good for me as that first section. Um, Interesting. And, and I think it goes into the fact that this is so, you know, so slice of life. So, you know, just spending time with these characters. And I think I just kept picking up on, especially in the Vietnam section, the sheer amount of coincidences that happen um, where the three guys keep running into each other. Um, you know, the three guys just end up being the, the guys who survive the spoilers, by the way, we're going to spoil this. It's 40. Yes. You've, you've had 40 um, plus years. Yes. The, you know, they, they, they all three survive. They're the ones who survive the Russian roulette. Um, Walken and De Niro just end up at the same Russian roulette place. And I don't think any of it's bad. It just, I think it went from this very naturalistic thing to, Oh, I can see the movie. Like I can see the bones of the movie right here. If that makes sense. That's, that's interesting. I don't I see if, if you aren't as. I, I, that, that sequence, that middle sequence, the Russian roulette sequence, when they are, when they are prisoners of war is, you know, it is, I am already so invested in knowing them that I find that to be, torturous which it's supposed to be oh yeah it is yeah. it is as gut-wrenching as that first like i don't i, I guess i can't I, I i hear you saying that that part doesn't hit you like the first part does you feel like it's movie and i'm like well we've had no movie and so this is what happened it doesn't feel plotty yeah. to me i guess i guess i i don't know if that's exactly what you're what you're saying i, I, I guess i i don't i i don't have that sense out of this because because it is in part, such a movie. I mean, it is it is this grand statement. I mean, in mm-hmm. that first half, there's all that there's all that ritualistic male bonding and all of that. You know, depending on your charitableness towards the concept, these very you know haughty noble ideas about hunting and about you know about being part of the land and all of this, and to watch what happens and to watch how the movie then undercuts that in the third act because of what happens in Vietnam and doesn't undercut it in a way that says you shouldn't believe in any of this and this is all crap and you've been an idiot for believing in it all along. You're just seeing one single man's individual 
realization that that's not enough, that mm -hmm. that's not everything and that I don't have the answers anymore. And I find that to be, I find that to be beautiful and, and not in a, you know, not, not in an aesthetic way. I, 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 you know, this film has infamously been lambasted by many, many people over the years for being just a terribly racist endeavor and to call, you know, many people just think it's a simplistic, a simplistic movie about, male bonding and i'm like that's there if you want to make that if, if that's what you're going to take from it that's fine but i think you're missing out on how much this captures a loss of belief in things where the country was in 1978 1979 in a way that no other hollywood film of the era does that's what so much of those films were about but this doesn't do it in a way that makes it like how you were a sucker for ever believing it just presents one guy who thinks man i don't know exactly what i'm supposed to do now that everything i believed in isn't enough anymore and so i'm still going to do these things the way i think i'm supposed to and i don't know what that is for sure and i don't know if that's going to work and i find that's why i find the ending of the film the actual ending of the film you know i don't know how else to end it uh, it, it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't work. It's as, it's as I'm sure it is as flabbergasting for many people as the sequence of them all singing the same song in Magnolia, but I don't know how else to end the deer hunter. Oh, <laughs> I think it's the a godless America. The yeah. Godless, no, yeah. there is. Oh, okay. And I, I mean, want to clarify Like, yeah, if I have anything that drew it back from like, it didn't rob the movie of any power for me. Okay. Um, it, it, it was just more of a, oh, wow, I am so caught up in this first half just living with these characters and feeling, you know, the rhythm of this movie. And then suddenly I feel like, oh, well, they're running into each other and I'm, I'm picking out the consequences, you know, the gotcha. uh, coincidences. And I'm like, huh, that's, that just seems more of a movie than the first part was. And gotcha. to the point where I actually was surprised to go back and learn this wasn't based on a novel because it's very meticulously composed like a novel i mean it's very symbolic in places i mean oh yeah that that whole russian roulette sequence is symbolic of vietnam right you know it's and that's the only way i know that you can going symbolic with that is the only way i know especially at that time you could probably capture the war's impact on an individual um is to get really small and burrow in and take an experience so it didn't rob the movie of power that that sequence is still it's horrifying um more horrifying to me is Stephen being left with the rats, um, which I found out was uh, actually when they're filming that the actor did not like rats and a rat just climbed, climbed into the water with it. That, yes. That bothered me. Um, gosh, I, I don't know if I wanted to get to the uh, God bless America sequence yet, but I think. I, I think hold off for a while. let's hold off. I want to come back to that because I have thoughts. Um, sure. That are mostly in line with, with what you're saying. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Like it, there was just something and it might just be the fact that, you know, you end a movie, you always end a movie feeling a certain way. And if I've learned, if I feel really high on a movie when it ends, I'm going to kind of mellow in the coming days. And that, I, I don't even know if that means I see the movie differently. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of, I don't trust my first instinct and maybe I go back and nitpick, but I, I could definitely fee see, you know, the bones of the screenplay there. Didn't, it doesn't make it a bad movie. It just means I saw it. And I think I love that first hour so much that that middle half kind of is like, oh, okay, well, now we're in a movie. 
But then you do come back to the third part, you know, when uh, De Niro's character returns. And I find that third act would not work without everything that first hour did, building that community. Because you suddenly feel that community that he had. And I don't mean the town. I mean the relationships he had, the routines he had. You feel how all of them are now broken and out of place. Yeah. Because of everything that happened. Um, so so it might be an issue I have that I, I can't even put in place myself. But it does. That third act is deeply sad. And I've read some of the some of the criticisms about this. Um, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson do a really good film podcast called Unschooled. It's okay. They talked about this. <laughs> it, it, it's a decent it's podcast, okay. <laughs> but they did not. They both did not like this movie at all. Right. And, um, yes. I was just listening to it the other day and I'm like, I think you don't get this movie. Right. Um, One of the criticisms I've heard is that Michael is too perfect, right? Like he just always knows what to do and that's why he survives. And that's why he comes home and he's got it all together. And I'm like, he doesn't have it together when he comes home. Right. You know, he's, he's, he's can't sleep. He, he avoids going to his own coming home party. Yeah. Like he's totally putting up a facade of a guy who has it together, but he does not have it together when he comes home. I mean, no, no, none of those guys come home from Vietnam. Like, like, and I think that's probably the point to the movie. And I don't know how people miss that. Um, De Niro is, by the way, so good. Fantastic. And this is very much his, I mean, this, he was the reason this got made. He wanted to do this. Uh, and he, uh, I, that Chimino, I don't know how Chimino got it precisely. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, he'd done Thunderbolt and Lightfoot to that point and was certainly an entity, but, uh, you know, had, we'd seen nothing that made any, anybody think this was going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, that he was capable of something this grand. And yes, and De Niro absolutely grounds it and is at the, sort of apex of where he was in as an actor in the late seventies, comfortable with being not just unsympathetic, but almost unreadable. Like he wasn't, he could play cold. And that's what Mike, not that Mike's cold, but he is even in the first part of the film, he's detached. You know, you get this sense that there's this code he is trying to live up to mm-hmm. inside himself. It's not even, you know, it, there's no there's no grand statement being made. There's that, you know, that fantastic sequence that is sort of the most movie sequence at the wedding when, you know, they meet the guy who's come back and they want to yeah. hear about how great it is and the guy will not talk. And, and you could see, you could see d- 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 no one but De Niro could have done this like this at that point in time. And not a lot of people could have done it since then either. Um, and yeah, he doesn't, he's someone who does not change outwardly from his experiences. He keeps everything contained and bottled even before the trauma of what happens in Vietnam, which is what makes the sequence with Meryl Streep is where the film, I don't want to say fails, but where you so want it to lean into, you want Mm. more of the two of them. You want more of this, relationship that he is incapable of having but obviously wants to have 
<laughs> that yeah. stuff is so they are so I mean it's it's not even that many scenes together it really isn't it's only three or four and they are they loom large over the movie that's that is what you will remember outside of the wedding and the 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 Russian roulette sequence it's those scenes are spectacular and all completely underplayed and um I mean I've I've read reports that Meryl Streep was basically allowed to make up her dialogue that the character really wasn't not a part of the script <laughs> and that they leaned into this and figured out, Oh, this is, this is interesting. And they were right. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they'd leaned a little more. Uh, but that said, yes, everything you said is exactly right. It is, it is a film that is very grand. It deals with huge emotions, but it's about people who express very little. And that's, one of the great clashes that I think makes this film just endlessly fascinating to me. It is the overwhelming sanctuarious experience. Sensual sounds like the wrong word. So I'm trying to come up with the right word <laughs> uh, of, of these huge emotions that are given such little room to express. And that's fascinating. I mean, even to watch, you know, how dead Christopher Walken is during his last scene in the movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's horrifying. <laughs> horrifying. Uh, anyway, I've, I've babbled poetically. Well, <laughs> save me from myself, Chris. No, no. I, I, one thing that I, I, you brought up that it was very controversial when it came out. And it, and it was. It was, I mean, there were protesters at the Oscars. Um, John Wayne did not like it. Uh, and I'm wondering if part of that was people wanted... People expected a movie that was going to be some way a statement, you know, a, a big pro-war film or a pro or a big anti-war film. And I don't think this is either. I mean, it, I, I think it leaves you in a place where I, I don't think you feel good about the war, but this is not about this is about the this is about the emotions of the people who were there and what they came home to. Yeah. And I think people who wanted the big, the you know, the ultimate Vietnam story weren't going to get that you know that film that fed their you know wh- whatever they wanted to make it into that fed their statement or whatever it, it it's a movie that is more nuanced it is it, it's very hard like you've said to talk about what it's about because it's it's about that shift that michael feels when he comes home because of what happened there yeah it's it's about it's not so much about will he bring you know nick home it's about why nick can't go home yeah. I mean, that's a harder thing to talk about. And I think it does it really well. Um, yeah, I, I walk in, by the way, it's just the, those final so sequences good. are heartbreaking, but he's good the whole way through. Oh, like, he's fantastic. Like, he's, he's fantastic. so vibrant in the first half. And then in the actual, you know, the Vietnam sequences, it's just, I, you've, it's very hard to play terror without it feeling really over the top. He does so well, like yeah. in those sequences, the relief he feels when that gun does not go off. It, it's so well yeah. played. I, I, and I will steal from David Thompson, a critic I like a great deal, who said there are shots during that sequence where where uh, Walken is at his most just sweaty and skeletal that he reminds him uh he reminded thompson of maria falconetti in, in uh, passion of joan of arc 
be great drier film and that's so smart that is really what Chimino is getting at in those sequences it is a an almost you know if you will forgive me a christ-like suffering that is you are you have to watch mm-hmm. and you have to suffer along with and that's it's really powerful it's really good one thing that kind of I, I was left wondering how I felt about it when the movie ended. And I think I've come around, but I want to hear your opinion first. The movie sets up a lot of conflicts in the first half, right? So there's this conflict between uh, John Cazal's character and Robert De Niro. Um, basically, you know, De Niro's the guy who's always prepared, always on the ball. John Cazal's character is not. Um, and then there's Steve's, you know, wife who's pregnant by another man. Mm-hmm. And the film never comes back and deals with it. Like it never comes back and speaks to that. And at first I was really kind of frustrated by that. And I came around to it, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. Not coming back to that. I've never thought about it. It's never bothered me. It's never by the, you know, they, they strip all of that away in the third, like, like you said, it's about what it's like now that Mike's back. And so the two times he's got to deal with the people who, he was over there with directly like you were saying they can't go back mm-hmm. and you know all of that certainly the stuff about about uh steven's wife is you know another layer of why he might not want to go back although by the end of the film he is back he's back <laughs> he is physically back uh and, and and make of that what you will. You know, that is maybe as close as we get to something kind of like a happy ending, you know, in, in the midst of this incredible sadness, as you so rightfully uh, described it when I asked you your experience with the film. <laughs> yeah, what I kind of came around to, I was frustrated at first because I'm like, well, it's a movie. It should resolve this by the end. You know, you don't bring this up if... But the more I thought about it, and I think this crystallizes, you know, the themes of the movie. Yeah, they have this entire life at the beginning of the movie with all these things that are the tensions under the surface, just the very fabric of life that, yeah, they're going to have to get married and deal with this. They're going to have to deal with their tensions because this is the life they live in the place they live. And then Vietnam kind of blows all that up and those tensions are secondary now because there are things that have stolen their focus and their sanity and the way they do their life. And I think it just speaks to the way that this war just, it devastated to the point where they're off their axis and can't even deal with the things that would have been the most important thing in their life, you know, however many years before they came home. Um, And that's, that's why that final sequence, which we can talk about now, I, I think it hit me so hard is because I looked around as that, that scene's playing out, as they're all singing God Bless America. You look at every face there, and there are a hundred different emotions behind yeah. them singing that song. It is, they're singing it because it's the patriotic thing you do when a soldier dies. They're singing it because they want to believe there's a reason behind this death. They're singing this because they don't believe it anymore. And there's an ironic counterpoint behind it. There is so much going on in the, that final sequence. And it just yeah. leaves you with it. 
And I, for me, it's, and, and all of those readings are, are absolutely valid. I am not about to offer what I think is the definitive reading and the only way to read this film. But for me, it's always worked for the reasons I, I mean, let's, you know, it is, for me, it's another showing of the grand theme of the movie, right? The big sequence in the movie is, thematically is, you know, they go on the deer hunt before they leave for Vietnam. Mike shoots the deer. Then after he's back, there's another deer hunt and he's got the deer in his sights and can't kill it mm-hmm. or won't kill it. It's not really clear. Can't or won't, whatever. He has been changed enough that this ritualistic thing that he felt he needed to do, he can't or won't do anymore. That doesn't stop him from going to Vietnam and possibly shooting himself in the head. That's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's that that you know not that it explains but that illustrates i guess is the word i want how affected this this character has been by what they have experienced and then to watch then for the payoff to be yes he's going to continue to do these things or at least try to do them because he thinks that's what he knows to do and maybe or maybe not will he get any actual comfort or understanding of himself out of it. And that's all that singing God Bless America is again at the end of the film. For me, as a viewer, that's what I get out of the movie. All of your, it could be read, you know, like I, I, I'm always reminded of Patton, that people love Patton because you could read it as a completely gung-ho American film. You can completely read it as an anti-American, anti-war film. <laughs> that it walked that perfect line of is is he crazy and hateable or is he our guy to the end? You know, this film avoids being that obvious one way or the other mm-hmm. with what it's doing. And that's why it's, again, well, as I said before, that's why I find the film just utterly compelling every time I see it and every time I think about it and talk about it, I don't know any other film that deals with on such a huge canvas. And again, Oh, Oh, Chris, if you ever get a chance to see it in the theater, do it. Oh my gosh. I was going to just Vilma, say Vilma Sigmund cinematography in this, this one has one of my five favorite opening shots ever in any movie. Un- underneath that bridge, you just see the town and the mountains and the sky. And you're like, Oh, well, this is where we are now. And yes, that's where you spend the next hour is in this town. You will know this town inside and out by the end, by the end of the first hour of this movie. I was just thinking as, uh, as you were saying that, like right before I was going to bring up, this is like an argument for shooting dramas in IMAX. This, this is yes. a movie that it, it even, even um, because one of the things I learned when I was reading up on it is this is like a rare movie that was never even cropped from 70 millimeter. So you're, you're seeing that aspect ratio the entire time. And so it's, yeah, you have these big grandiose scenes outside, like the scenes where they are hunting are just so gorgeous that those outdoor yeah. sequences, but then you also have, and this is what uh, Tarantino did with hateful eight when he shot it so big and how, why I liked that movie, you know, in the 70 millimeter mm-hmm. is when they're inside at the bar and you can see just everyone, And you can take in that entire ensemble because I think the other thing that really struck me is how that first hour of the film, there are all these big shots of all of them together, Mm -hmm. right? And it is this community. It is this group of friends. And then in that back half, you know, it is two people in the shot, one person. And that 
shows you just the fracture that has happened o- over the course of those years. And to see that on the big screen would be great because this is definitely a movie that you could just soak in, like, yeah. especially that first hour. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it is a gorgeous movie. Um, and I really would love to see it. If it does come back out, they don't release movies as much as I would like them to, but. No, but at least watch it on something a little bigger Better than, than a laptop, laptop next time yeah. soon. Just, that's just my only hope, just for me. You know what, if you want the DVD, I can lend it to you, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, it, it, but it, yes, it, even on the laptop, it, it was a gorgeous look. Yes, it is. Um, I, I forget, was there anything else I was going to say? Oh, John Cazale. We, so this is like the, I think we've talked about every one of his movies except for The Conversation. Which we should have if we were doing the films of the 70s, yeah, really. Yeah. But and, we wanted to focus on The Godfather and that's too much Coppola all at one and, shot. So, And I, I do love The Conversation. It's been years since I've seen it. But it's I, fantastic. I love that. Um, but I, I really like I'm glad I got the chance to see so many of his movies over these last few months yeah. because I loved every time I shot, saw him show up and everything. And even here, like he was sick when he's filming this, like he died shortly before this came out. And it's a great performance. Yeah, um, I I, I, I kind of wonder if like I heard this brought up elsewhere. I kind of wonder if originally his character was supposed to go to Vietnam with the others. Um and then maybe him being sick, you know, prevented that. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, it actually kind of works that he's the guy who has all this bluster and all this anger. Yeah. And he's toting around a gun and he doesn't even go to war. Like he hasn't had that experience. Also, as it is now, there's three guys that go and three guys that stay. There's really yeah. six guys that are the center of the group that we're, mm-hmm. we're hanging with. And so I think that even split makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was wondering so Michael brings Stephen home from the VA hospital. Yeah. Is that, I, I can read that both ways. I don't know if I, if he made the right decision there. Like, I think he's doing, you know, this is what you do. You bring the soldier home. Right. But he's not ready to come home. Like he's not in a place where he can come home. Quite possibly. Yeah. Yes. That's and, a perfect, again, a, an absolutely perfect valid reading of that. Absolutely. And plays into yeah how i read the movie which is he's going to do these things because he thinks these are the right things to do and he doesn't have anything else to switch to he's got no other grand plan no no internal compass that can let him do anything else and it's you know and it is these things that we traditionally lionize it is this idea of you know brotherhood at all costs and you know a, a a a a a rugged moral way to to control the universe by hunting and it does the the majesty of the sequences play into all of that and you know lean into it and if you're not and and it doesn't critique that it just asks well what do you do when that's not enough anymore mm-hmm. and yeah. that's that's stunning it and it it just it plays it, play, it plays every time i see it and every well, time I think about it, it's a, I, I find it to be a truly great movie. I understand that it's divisive. It's difficult to recommend if people have never seen it. Like I said, I was so happy that you said, you told the story about how I said, just watch it in one sitting. You it, can't stop it. You, you got to take it in. It doesn't work to be episodic. It's, it's no, no, you, no, you no. can easily divide it up that way, but you're going to lose the impact because Absolutely. you need everything to flow into the others. One final thing I had on this though. Because again, as I've read up over the last week, I I like to go and see what other people thought about it. I hear a lot of descriptions that this is a very macho movie. This is a movie about machismo. And 
did not walk away with that impact at all. Um, I, I think it's a very tender movie in places. Um, I think it's very much about, you know, male bonding in places, but about also how much of that is performance and how much of that is destabilized, you know, when you're really in the thick of it and you, you're suddenly broken and you don't have, you know, that's not going to help you stand up. Like you said, it's not enough anymore. Um, I don't see this as a rah-rah, war is great, men are men movie. I see it as a movie about men like that being broken. Yeah, agreed, agreed. If, and I understand, the, I understand the criticism the film gets. You can take that stance, but I think you are denying other things that are there when you do that. It's I, I will I will say, yeah, sure. The, I, I think the racism charge might be sort of accurate in some places. I mean, but See, I don't know. If, I don't. I And I know that's easy for me to say. I grant <laughs> everything, everything that comes with the with the white straight man saying this. But it is like you said, it's a metaphor. It's not to be taken literally by any means. It is, a, you know, if you want to argue from a sheer production standpoint, it's way easier to shoot that sequence in that little set in that little set with six guys than to wage an entire battle. You know, it is a mm-hmm. stand in for the entire experience of being there the sheer randomness of it. And that works for me. I don't, I, I don't, uh, it is that, it is that great question of, you know, how, how, how much are we supposed to take the visual representation in a film? You know, this is the conversation that we've been having culturally for the last five years, if not 10, you know, and I, I understand it is important and it it's, you know, it's, it's the old Scorsese line. Cinema is a question of what's in the frame and what's not. And if what is in the frame is a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Vietnamese guys torturing Americans by making them play Russian roulette, yes, you can make that argument. And at the same time, I would like to think there's a conversation that can be had where, well, it's not just that. <laughs> there are much bigger things at play here. They are, <laughs> we're not supposed to take this literally by any means. Uh, the movie's far too majestic to take literally. It is allegorical. And so let it be allegory and allow for that. And I think the film is, uh, I, I, I think the film does, I think the film earns that. I don't think it is using it in that sense because there is, there is none of that rah-rah, you know, <laughs> we're soldiers at war. They're, they're scared mm-hmm. even before they leave. They don't want to show it, but we see it. Well, that's they, and that's great. They don't understand, and they're afraid of what they do. They know they don't understand. They know that they don't know what's going to happen. That's um, that's one of the things they brought up in the uh, Paul Shear, Amy Nicholson podcast. Is you know, there's the uh, the breakout when you know they're doing the Russian roulette, and they're like, oh, it's their badass plan. I'm like, that's a total panic move. Yes, that scene is terrifying even through their escape because they, they have no other option. I don't, I don't read that. I, I think I agree with you. I can understand the call, you know, the people who said it's racist. And I think if this was yes. the only movie made about Vietnam and it was the only, you know, it was the ultimate Vietnam statement. Yeah. They probably have a, you know, a responsibility to be more even handed when you need to show that there are three guys who are terrified you're going to depict the enemy a certain way. 
Uh, to the point that one of them is saying the other one's gone. Mm-hmm. We can't yeah. be saved. Yeah. That's, I don't know how to do that intimately other than how it's done here. It's yeah. remarkable. It's remarkable what I think the film achieves. Yeah, I, I think you're bringing me up another half star. On yes! Um, Get up to that I, fifth star, Chris. I still, yeah, Let's I still, do this! Yeah, Come on! Well, I'm four and a half. Four and a half. I'm watching um, the letterbox. I'm watching. I'm waiting for that fifth star to fill in. Let's do this. Four, four and a half. <laughs> I, I'm at four and a half. Um, Because I do still feel like, okay, I, I can see the bones, and I don't know how much that bothers me. But four and a half out of five stars. I mean, it, that that's still, that's still in Tree of Life esque territory (laughs) it is a great movie and i feel like it is a movie that when i return to it i will see more in it and i will return to it because it is it it is a movie that i don't hear talked about as much as say the godfather or um any other other ones we covered and i think that's a shame because i would say this is one of the better movies we've dealt with in this series. And we've dealt with great movies. We have talked the last few months about literally some of the best movies ever made. And And this this is one of them. Yes, absolutely belongs in the conversation. I, I do agree with that. So it's, it is, it's remarkable. It's a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. And, and, And it has to be. It has to be because of what the sheer scope of what they are doing physically with the production. It's got to be. Yeah. You and would it not, is. You would not have a studio spend all that money to make a three hour intimate story about war where only 45 minutes of it is war. And the rest is how sad they are when they get home. Yeah. Um, you would have to get Netflix to put out a series. Like exactly. That's as close exactly. as you would get. That's what would happen to it. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. And that's Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter, I hot take. It's a good movie. Um, <laughs> and I want to see one other thing about yeah, it before we absolutely. go. Absolutely. And this is specifically about Christopher Walken, who, of <laughs> course, as we've talked about, got his Oscar for this movie. And one of my favorite stories of his, he told it on his Inside the Actors Studio, where he said to his wife, his wife said, uh, he got, he got, he, he took the statue, sat down beside her. She looked at him and he said, this is a house. And it was. They were able to buy a house based on the next movie he took. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the right perspective on this. But what I wanted to say is if you walk in as a superior actor Mm -hmm. and this gets lost, uh, you know, he was, he is so happy to be the alien other. (laughs) And he has, he has grown very comfortable to be that all the time on screen. And he certainly has an energy that, that leans into that and, makes that very unique and very much uh, a, a, a path he has cut out for himself as an, as an, as an unconventional looking leading man in Hollywood. But in this brief period of time uh, in two things, and now we're going to tie together the two tie together, both halves of the show, Chris. All right. In the first hour of this movie, he's an every man. That's not ever what Christopher Walken is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe that he can be that, watch this movie. Yeah. He is young and innocent and a- absolutely beautiful. He's, he's a beautiful looking man, beautifully shot in this movie. Uh, and, you know, and it pairs nicely with The Dead Zone just three years later, where again, he's got to play, he's playing a guy named John Smith. <laughs> That's Christopher Walken is not an actor you cast to play a guy named John Smith in any movie <laughs> and while yes while that uses his otherness to uh to great effect when he develops his powers 
he's supposed to be just a regular guy before then. And he is, and he's very good. He's, he's a, he's a absolutely spectacular actor. And while yes, De Niro is carrying the movie beyond belief. That's what allows Walken to, uh, to do what he did to win his Oscar, his, his very well-deserved Oscar for this movie. And now to further bring it back to the first half of this show, the Dead Zone is a movie I have not seen. Are you I, kidding me? And I considered oh! it, but I have the novel sitting on my bookshelf oh! that I need to read. No, watch the movie. Watch the okay. movie. Watch the, I okay. think it's the best. I, I think it's the best King adaptation. Okay. I, I, I don't think it's close. <laughs> Honestly, there are a lot of good King adaptations, but I, I don't think any film gets that. Here, here's, here's, and reading, uh, I, I read, I actually, I actually went back to back with King this summer. I, Dr. Sleep, and then I did um, 11, 23, 60, uh, 60, I haven't read that one. My wife has read that, but not me. And what I had forgotten, because I, I read King voraciously as a teenager and intermittently since then, I'd forgotten how much of it is supernatural. Mm-hmm. I, I forget this. I, 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 I shouldn't. It's, it's always there i just think about the horror element of it it's also the supernatural stuff is usually far less interesting to me uh as just as a, from as a as a consumer of these things uh but the dead zone movie does this great job cronenberg allows for there to be the supernatural while never letting it override the natural real world Okay. It is it is the supernatural thing that is happening to this very normal person. And where all of Cronenberg's films to that point had been, you know, his classic body horror stuff of watching the physical degradation of the human body in its various forms. You know, all that happens to John Smith throughout that movie is he gets paler. But Walken just feels transformed and weakened and lesser throughout, which is what's happening in both the movie and the book. It's a fantastic adaptation. I don't think one would ruin the other is all I'm saying. Okay. Maybe don't, I'll check that like, one out. It is, it is a faithful adaptation of the dead zone. Okay. And it doesn't Maybe. ruin it. And it's, it's, the movie's really good. <laughs> the movie's really good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, maybe I will add that. Oh, I can't recommend that enough, Chris. Okay. If you haven't seen that, that's absolutely should be at the top of your list. All right. All right. Cause I don't know when I'm getting around to the novel. Cause I have a big, stack of books i gotta get to but um love the dead zone maybe i'll do that one last thing if you enjoyed walking and de niro in the deer hunter see them again when they team up his old war buddies in the war with grandpa (laughs) fun fact the way i feel about the deer hunter is the exact opposite of the way i feel about (laughs) the the war with grandpa Grandpa, which i did see because i had to review and there Whoa. could be a three-hour movie about my nice normal life and then 20 minutes of me having to experience that movie and then another hour of me trying to reacclimate into life, not understanding how it works anymore after having seen <laughs> The War with Grandfather. Harry, I think that brings us to the end of our Deer Hunter discussion as well as the end of our discussion about these movies from the 70s. So we have talked about... Oh, you, you, were, you were gesturing one. Did you have something you wanted to say? Oh no! I was just going to say it's not the end of us talking about movies from the seventies. That's true, but it's, it's the, the end, end of this particular series. series. Sure. Yes, called films of the seventies. Yes, yes. And we have discussed doing Altman next. Uh, we have not discussed where we will start with that, but uh, we will have an answer for you in the coming weeks. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? 
You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucy and Lance show on WLBY in Ann Arbor. You can often hear me on the Cathode Ray Mission podcast. We are actually going to be discussing the films of David Cronenberg, Halloween weekend. I'm very excited to be doing that. Uh, And you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Perry Loves Film. All right. Well, you can find me. I'm just going to pimp my uh, newsletter right now. It is criticisms.substack.com. Um, I have been hit by a real bug for writing in the last few weeks on this site, and I have just inundated my subscribers with stuff in the past week. Um, there was my write-up of Empire of the Sun. I started my Stephen King series there. I've been posting a republishing some things I wrote a few years back about the first appearance of slasher icons. So there's some uh, Halloween retrospectives in there. There's a look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre coming up. Um, I wrote about 3,000 words on No Time to Die that dive heavily into spoilers. And I'm sure sometime next week I will have my thoughts on Halloween Kills, which I plan on uh, watching on Peacock (laughs) because the reviews are not good oh i didn't know it was on peacock it will be on peacock starting friday october 15th only if you pay for peacock though right i think only if you pay for peacock yeah that's all right i I pay for peacock i I don't know if you can watch girls five ever without it (laughs) and i highly recommend girls five ever okay okay i it's it's (laughs) that will take a backseat at least until november and i steal my sister-in-law's uh uh, uh, Disney Plus uh, uh, pass login so that I can watch that the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary. <laughs> oh, you didn't you didn't steal it from Muppets uh, Haunted Mansion? No, not from Muppets <laughs> Haunted Mansion. The last time I, I sold it was for the first episode of Loki, which I was like, yeah, I don't need to watch all this. <laughs> oh, I liked Loki. I liked Loki. It's fine. I don't. So. I don't need to watch all this. <laughs> Well, we will be back in hopefully two weeks and we will uh, either be starting our Altman marathon or do a little one-off. And uh, I think the way Perry's looking, we're going to start the Altman marathon. Yeah, get get ready for a a conversation about the movie that is unlike the famous TV show that it spawned. Oh, okay. So we're starting with MASH. (laughs) Yeah, let's start with MASH. Absolutely. Two weeks, we're back with MASH.